Hello and welcome to the Complete Goblinography, Episode 1. This is the bastard offspring of the Complete Discography in Babpod, uh, wherein we will be reviewing uh, and discussing the Goblin Emperor series. I am one of your hosts, Jude Vase. Uh, I have, you can hear my voice on Babpod, where I am the resident lizard Goblin. man horn dog, I guess, is my common designation. I have three co-hosts tonight. Why don't you uh, introduce yourselves? Who are we starting with? <laughs> well, you talked first, so now it's you. Okay. Um, I am Scott Paladin. Um, I am... Uh, no thoughts, head empty at the moment. Um, you can find me on all kinds of other projects under the Library of Cursed Knowledge and also uh, Breathing Space, which is a sci-fi audio drama. Noted friend of the show, Scott Paladin, who has yeah. yes. I, I, I need appeared to ask because on... I don't know which, what level of horny to bring. <laughs> and and Scott, you have been a guest on both of the podcasts. Exactly. That this is uh, a bastard child of. <laughs> yep. So thank you. <laughs> Listeners will probably recognize my voice. Hello, I'm Anna. Um I am a co-host on both Babpod and Complete Discography. Okay, and I guess that leaves me. Uh, hi, I'm Michael. I'm Anna's husband. Um, I probably need to construct a whole other online identity so that I don't, you know, just out myself on whatever I would say here. So I'm just going to leave that blank. <laughs> Fair enough. So our format tonight, we're going to do a... Very kind of high level summary of of the book, just to sort of refresh our memories of what are, what we're talking about, uh, and then we're gonna discuss what we liked. I threw some bullet points out. Anna threw, th threw some bullet points out. We kind of put some some notes down, and we're just gonna kind of talk about what about this absolutely fantastic novel uh, we liked and what jumped out at us, and uh, we'll go through it. Uh, since you wrote the summary, Anna, why don't you uh, run with it? I will add a couple of points at the very top uh, as far as publishing details. The novel, uh, The Goblin Emperor, uh, was published in 2014. We should probably mention the author. That feels <laughs> yeah, like a nice probably. thing to do. Uh <laughs> Uh, that feels like the appropriate thing to do. Uh, it was written by Catherine Addison and published, uh, uh, who is, which is a pseudonym for Sarah Manette. Uh, and it was published in 2014. Uh, it has a number of gorgeous editions. It has been translated into uh, German, Hungarian, Spanish, Turkish, and Japanese. The Japanese covers are extremely dope. Uh, fun facts about the translations: the Japanese version has been split into two into two pieces. So there's a part one huh. and a part two. That's why there are two Japanese covers when you look it up on the internet. Do you know where the split is? I don't. Uh, but I guess this is a thing that just Japanese books do because they're often broken down to be sold like in smaller pocket portions. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, because they, they have often, the whole light novel thing. Yeah, yeah, they break them down into smaller smaller uh, portions. So. There are two covers, both of which are, again, as I say, gorgeous. Um, it also has two audiobooks for a slightly less sensible reason. Uh, the audiobook was published in 2014, not narrated by Kyle McC McCarley. Uh, 
and then re-recorded and re-released in 2021 because the original audiobook used the cover art for the original hardback without attribution or payment. And the artists were very, very rightly pissed. They found it on Twitter and raised a stink and the original audiobook was pulled and republished with a new recording. So there's like a 15 minute difference with some slight pronunciation dif differences. And so the version you find now on audible and so forth is the re-recording same voice artist, but a re-recording unless you bought it, you know, nine oh. years ago, which apparently, apparently I do have both copies of the audiobook because I, I looked through my Audible list and I was like, why do I have two copies of the Goblin Emperor in here? Like, oh, fascinating. weird. Huh. Um, and apparently this explains it. So, yep. Is that also that dark pattern that we thought we saw the other day? No, well, not, not this one. The, the, I mean, the other one might be, might be potentially related. Um, I've had that happen to a couple of audiobooks where I have, where I ended up with two copies of them for presumably publication reasons like mm -hmm. this. Um, but weirdly, if you search in the Audible app for the Goblin Emperor, even if you have the 2014 version in your library, nothing comes up I've because it does that. not search your library. It searches the catalog. So I was like, gosh, th this was this, I've, this is why I've repurchased several audiobooks <laughs> because I was like, gosh, why on earth don't huh. I have the long way to a small angry planet? I know I've listened to that on audiobook before. Gosh, that's strange. Turns out that it just doesn't come up in the search. So thank you, Audible, <laughs> for making your iOS app absolutely dog shit. <laughs> it is dog shit. Absolutely. <laughs> that's all I have on the publishing notes. Um, I'll have some more uh, fun facts about the sort of the publishing and writing of the book uh, after the summary. But why don't you uh, take it away with our summary? All right. Um, attempting to condense this as much as I can, considering this is a hefty book. So our protagonist is Maya, the 18-year-old fourth son of the Emperor of the Elflands, uh, and the product of his ill-fated political marriage with goblin royalty Chenelo. Chenelo and the infant Maya were relegated to a distant manor until Maya was eight, when Chenelo passed away and Maya was once again relegated, this time to the even more distant manor, Adonami, under the abusive guardianship of his co cousin Sethris. The story begins as Maya receives a message in the middle of the night. His father and brothers were all killed in an airship crash, and he must take the throne of the Elflands. Maya and Sethris hastily travel back to the palace to ensure that Maya isn't immediately under the thumb of Lord Chancellor Shabar. And Maya finds an ally along the way in the form of the courier who brought the news, Sevet, who is happy to educate the new emperor on politics, court, court intrigue, and governance, and serve as, serve as his personal secretary. When they reach the court, Maya is overwhelmed by his new life. His first day is packed with negotiations with Shabar for a speedy coronation, introductions of his bodyguards, being fitted for a new wardrobe that's fit for an emperor and not for somebody relegated and wearing rags, basically, um, endless correspondence, and, surprising everyone, a visit to the funeral of the airship staff and servants who were also killed in the crash at Maya's insistence. Things do not improve for Maya after his co coronation as Edward Hasbar VII. He is overwhelmed by his new office as well as the crash course and things that he should already know. Uh, the hostility and condescension he faces from many people at court and the strange social isolation of being emperor. 
After learning that the crash that killed his father was caused by sabotage and that Jafar intends to lock him out of the investigations, Maya appoints the clerical witness for the dead, Tharak Helahar, as his own investigator. Also, with the line of succession leaving his 12-year-old nephew Idra as heir, Maya is forced to choose his empress far more quickly than he'd like, settling on the scholarly but cold Sethro Kredin. The start of Maya's reign is marked by a series of small kindnesses and the slow discovery of new allies. Maya visits the elderly, bedridden, and poverty-stricken noblewoman who cared for him at his mother's funeral, ensures that the other victims of the airship crash have a proper tombstone, and saves his sister Videro from an unwelcome marriage to the boorish and ambitious Eshevis Tethamar. Meanwhile, Lord Baronar volunteers to tutor Maya in politics, history, and political strategy, and Maya forms a friendly relationship with the former Empress Arbalon, who was herself divorced and relegated for infertility, and is greeted warmly as kin by the ambassador from Barajan. Maya also ensures that the clocksmiths of Zhao are given an audience for the proposal of a drawbridge over the very large river Isanda Artha. There are larger things for Maya to tackle as well. His grandfather, the great Avar of Barajan, announces his intention to make an unprecedented state visit to Maya's court for the solstice and Maya's birthday uh, celebrations. Tharak Helahar runs out of leads for his investigation and must travel north after he re- receives a vision from the god Ulus. And a lurking conspiracy comes to a head. Shabar and Idra's mother, Shevayan, abduct Maya and attempt to force him to abdicate the throne. When their coup is thwarted, it leaves Maya to deal with appointing a new Lord Chancellor, uh, taking guardianship of Idra and his sisters, and witnessing the ritual suicide of one of his bodyguards who aided in the abduction. Despite being a logistical nightmare, the visit of the great Avar goes well. Maya is able to connect not only with his grandfather, but also his aunt Nadean. His birthday brings not only presents and messages from the usual members of court, but also from all of the people Maya has shown compassion and generosity to during his reign so far. Unfortunately, Tethamar has other plans to commemorate the occasion, attempting to assassinate Maya at the Winter Night Ball. Tethamar is killed and Maya escapes, physically unscathed, due to the quick action of his bodyguards. Kelahar also arrives with more context for the attack. Tethamar had been a guiding force behind the death of Maya's father, working with revolutionaries on the plot. That assassination had actually not gone according to plan. Tethamar was supposed to be already married to Videro and clearly in line to the throne. Please note, he forgot about Maya entirely. Uh, But the revolutionaries acted early. In the epilogue, we see the continuation of these threads as Maya continues walking the path to becoming Edra Hasavar the bridge builder. He bonds with his future empress, Sethero, who turns out to have a fierce personality and affinity for dueling, as well as his sister, Videro, a feminist with a love of astronomy and a huge network of women talented in the arts, sciences, and engineering. Nadean and her husband remain in the city at the request of the Avar, pro- providing both pro- protection and community to Maya. Thara returns north to pursue his spiritual calling, revitalized by his investigations. And with the support of Lord Chancellor Berenar, the bridge over the Ascenda Arthur, named the Wisdom Bridge to commemorate all those killed in the crash, is approved for construction. Well done. That is a very succinct summary of a book with a lot of stuff going on. (laughs) And yet not a ton. I mean, as the summary points out, and you point out in your notes... 
it covers factually not that much happens in the sense that he shows up and survives to his birthday. And that's kind of, and like approves a bridge. Like yeah. the, the stuff that actually happens, like that will be commemorated in a history book is not actually all that much, but there's, it's such a momentous time in his head. And because the book is written from the third person, but like from inside Maya's head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very th- third person, very limited. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're basically the, the narrator is essentially one of the, one of the very, very harsh voices in Maya's head that is very critical of him. <laughs> Although the narrator is a lot less critical of Maya than Maya is. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm not sure it's because there actually is a lot going on in the plot. What I what I think makes it feel like it's not that much of a like it's you know like like it's a big story containing few actions is that most of it is stuff that's driven outside of Maya's control. Like it's stuff that happens to him and around him, but mm-hmm. that he yeah. isn't directly involved with. Like he only like we don't see any of either the assassination or uh, coup attempt plots until they happen, you know? So there's all yeah. these things that are happening that he doesn't have purview to. And therefore, because we're so limited in our, in our uh, scope, it feels like they don't, they just kind of, I don't, know, I don't know if they come out of nowhere exactly, but they do. We don't see the lead up to them the way that they might've been shown on say like a premier HBO TV show or something, you know? So that's right. a good point. Yeah. yeah. It, it kind of skews how the, the story feels, which I think is actually good because it makes it a very personal story. It's, it's Maya's story. It's not the story of the kingdom, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh I think that's a good place to start. Um is I want to talk about the the book first as a novel and I will drill into more specifics, but I I do want to talk about it first as a novel in terms of its its sort of a structure and how it's how it flows. Um a couple of interesting notes uh in regards to how it started, uh the author notes that uh she sat down initially to write a steampunk elves story. And where that initially took her was airships. Yeah. So the first thing she wrote was about airships or her first like initial notes for the story were about airships. And she went directly from steampunk elves to airships to the Hindenburg. (laughs) And that's how we got the crashed, the, the, the crash of the wisdom of Choharo, the inciting event for the series. And it all went from there. But I don't think it's particularly a steampunk story otherwise. Yes and no. Yeah. I mean, it's a there is a world, little but it's bit. It's a steampunk story. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little bit, but not, not particularly. It's not dominated by those elements. It's very background. And it's like there is some magic, but not a ton of magic. So it's again, it's like it's a steampunk world. It's a magic world, but it's not a that's not what the story is about. The story is super personal and or political. Yeah. Yeah. One of my notes on the novel is there's magic question mark. I don't know how it works. Question mark. Pretty sure the (laughs) author doesn't either. Question mark. (laughs) We should also note, let's, we'll put it, I'll put it at the top here. Uh, This is a good place to mention it. There are two sequels to this book. Kind of. There are two soon to be three additional novels plus two short stories all of which revolve around uh, one of the characters in this book, Thara Kelahar, the clerical witness for the dead that Maya commissions. And my good, and my good sad gay boy. Oh, he's the best. 
we will have future episodes about my my sweet boy Thar Kelahar. But suffice to say that there is much more world building that takes place in this world. Osreth is the name that she has given to this world that she has set all these stories in. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to spoil it because I think Anna and I are the only two people on the, on on this recording that have read beyond the Goblin Emperor. Uh, but she has no no more consistency of like she does no no more greater description or like consistent world building with regards to how the magic works in those novels than she does in this one. Like language, tea, uh, opera, what? Yeah, those all get expanded and like d- investigated. Civil planning, faux show. Magic, nope. So, which I think is great. I think is is. A really interesting thing, because that's one of the things I think is a hallmark of this novel is, as you pointed out, Scott, it's very much a personal novel. Mm-hmm. This is a story that lives inside Maya's head. And Maya is not an Amazai, as they're referred to in this world. He's a, I mean, as he refers to it, he's he's nobody. He's a kid that is too young to be emperor, doesn't know enough to be emperor, uh, a, a half-witted rag picker's child uh, as one of the many, many, many insults he, re- he he calls himself that he picked up from Sethris over the years. He's basically been in like the Elflands version of like McMurdo Station. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Like yeah. he's seen like five other people for the last decade. Yeah, the... The depths of his isolation, I think, are not made clear until he gets to the to the palace and starts interacting with more people. His world has been his abusive cousin Sethris, the cook, the maid, the maid's daughter, the maid's daughters, and the gardener, and that's it. Yep. That's wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like 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 I said, like people living like in Antarctica, like have more social sphere mm-hmm. than this. Yeah. It's it's amazing that Maya is not like already nuts. And I mean, we'll get into the degree to which Maya like is a little bit nuts, maybe. Yeah. Um, you know, it's amazing that he is not just batshit at the start of this up at, at the start of the book. And like it kind of realizing that maybe puts some of everybody's like questioning his suitability in a different light too that he has in fact been like incredibly isolated i found it really interesting because uh in particular i read the book again uh mostly listening to an audiobook this time but i kept thinking there's a certain amount where it almost feels like maya is you know the ideal ruler who's been you know built in a lab and somehow he gets on he get he gets crowned like he start when when it's when it's starting off, we've got this whole like, okay, the circumstances have shoved him onto the throne that he was you know never intended to reach. But there's a lot of things where his weaknesses, his isolation, actually fit him being emperor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a couple of of great moments where that's really emphasized. There's one where he's being harangued by Chavar, and he's he thinks to himself. Uh, you should try spending a decade 
being forced to live with a man who hates you and whom you hate and see how you deal with it. Yeah. Because he does have a certain immunity to the court's condescension and scorn because he has spent a decade living with someone who actively openly hates him. And it has both given him that sort of, not immunity, but it has taught him what it's like to be reviled. And it's shown him very clearly what he doesn't want when he gets to the court. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He very, very clearly, I'm going to use the word enunciates, but it's not the word I actually want, uh, that he he will not be mastered by Chavar Mm -hmm. or Sethiris. He's not going to be that the, an emperor that lets either of those people rule him. Yeah, yeah. It's all. It's also interesting because his isolation. It kind of. It's there's a um, you know, the, the idea of like absolute power corrupts absolutely, but like there's a certain of degree to which it's not just the um people being handed power, but people sort of living around a seat of power. You always get these sort of like stories about, you know, people uh, reaching for it and grabbing and and sort of being raised in a court sort of creates a sort of con- corrupting influences in a lot of stories. And it, you can see, you could really view this uh, tale as a a refutation of that. Like the only way you could get a good ruler is by taking somebody who did not grow up at court. Like the only possible mm-hmm. way this could have existed mm-hmm. is if you get a complete outside force, somebody who happens to be in the line of succession, but because of the attitudes of the people in court was never given any of the bad influences that normally would have, he would have picked up if he'd been growing up, you know, around his father and his older brothers and everybody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He has, he has no preconceptions mm-hmm. coming in really that, he doesn't know how anything works and like he's there to learn. He has to learn. He doesn't have preconceptions about anything really. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'd actually say that that ties into what you're saying with uh, the court as a corrupting influence, because um, one of the things that I kept noting was that um, no, the nobility are kind of dehumanizing anybody who's not noble. It's uh, and, Almost a, a ton of the things that are done to Maya are ultimately dehumanizing him. And so he hates it. And he's saying, I will not do that to anyone. And then he ends up, you know, being astonishing to people because he's not he's not dehumanizing the help just because they're just the help. Uh, he's yeah. not dehumanizing, you know, a kid because, oh, it's just a kid. Doesn't matter if, you know, you're a woman, you're a commoner, you're a priest, he's going to treat you kindly if he can. And that's that's where I get the, you know, he was built in a lab to be the perfect ruler. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a good way of putting it, for sure. It, it, ma- it makes you wonder how much of that is his response to his treatment by Sethiris. Also, how much of that is his influence from his mother? And how mm-hmm. much of that is his mother's influence being reflecting onto him sort of like, of how in reaction to the way she was treated by the elvish court where it's like oh they treat me like shit i'm gonna make sure my son doesn't do that um yeah so there's like a, a mixture of all three of those in there yeah i think chenelo's influence um is really interesting uh to look at uh chenelo his mother is a goblin a full-blooded goblin and the daughter of the great avar the leader of Barjan, the it's goblin. Essentially the, the Barjan emperor, more or less. Yeah, for all yeah. intents and purposes. And I think it's interesting 
to look at the ways in which the goblins are contrasted to the elves in the ways that it affect that it influences Maya as a protagonist. I do we'll talk about in the world building section a little more about the, the goblin and the elves differences, but the fact that one of the things that stands out to him is that elves consider all the help in their households family is something that he clings to. Or goblins, goblins rather. Or goblins do, excuse me, goblins do. And that's something that he really embraces and focuses on. And all these little rebellions that he is able to, that he he clings to, to push back on Sethris, even internally, his spirituality and all these things to try and retain that bit of his mother's influence on him. And his mother came from like a double blade of terrible royal experiences. She was yeah. basically sold by one emperor to another emperor and mistreated by both of them. Yeah. She was relegated more or less as soon as she got to, to the Elflands. And then her father never answered a single letter she wrote to him after that point. So you have to, it's remarkable to, that Maya is not an absolutely lunatic anti-royalist. Frankly, <laughs> only moderately anti-royalist. Yeah, well, he's he's a humanist more than he's an anti-royalist. Yeah, yeah. It it's funny because in in another book, in another story, one that started with from the point of view of the court, where the court was the good guys, you know, that you have the the good elvish nobility and all that stuff. Maya's origin story is almost like is almost built in a lab to produce a villain. You know, like yeah. that would be that would be the origin story of the guy who comes in and you and, and has his own coup and usurps the thing He's the season three villain for a for a big show. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The like you cast me aside yeah, because exactly. of my heritage and now I have returned to reclaim my throne. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And instead we just get the sweetest boy. <laughs> he is yes. so sweet uh, to everyone except himself. And that's one mm -hmm. thing I. I, I do yeah. want to talk about uh, Maya as a protagonist is both his tremendous, tremendous self-loathing and the degree to which that makes him an unreliable narrator. Yeah. So especially listening through the audiobook, there were so many times where I like would even just like pause and be like, buddy, no, no, no. Yeah. In, like th th one of the times that jumps out to me always is like every interaction with Bechelar. So I love, I want to preface this by saying I love Bechelar because I just always imagine Bechelar as being someone who is so wildly uncomfortable with their own, with his own emotions that he can't actually express that he has any affection for the emperor whatsoever. And so when, when he's like, choking on his own like discomfort with the situation because he's very uptight and proper like that much is clear mm -hmm. and so he's just trying to do his job well and protect this dumb precious boy that has showed up on his doorstep and is now his to protect and he's just trying to do a good job and protect this kid and this kid insists on doing all these things that are not standard i don't think he hates my at all yeah. But Maya from the beginning just assumes that Bechelar thinks he's the worst. And I'm just like, I don't 
Maya, please, I don't think he hates you. I think he's just, I think you just befuddle him six ways to Sunday. I don't think, at most, yes, absolutely, Shavar hates you. Soups, 100%. You called that one. I don't think that, and I'm going to forget her name, the the woman, the, the housekeeper of the Alketh Moret. Yeah. I'm not sure she hates you, man. I think at most, she just doesn't know what to expect. She's a servant like of your dad like i'm pretty sure she doesn't revile you in the horrible ways you think she does yeah just give yourself a break man especially since like on day two there's like this the like beautiful samovar filled with chamomile tea for him it's like that's not the gesture of somebody who hates you yeah yeah all these people go out of their way to like help him even the ones and like he he's like at one point he wants to meet all the people that are that work in the Alketh Moret, even the servants. And he interprets her like reaction to that as like disgust. And I'm like, buddy, maybe she's just surprised. Maybe that's just never occurred to her that someone would do that. Cause your dad was a prick and you're not. And maybe she's just like, what in the world? They've they've got to all be surprised. Um, everybody who is around Maya presumably like got into their role thinking that they were going to deal with people like Varanetchabel, who were condescending and thought they were better just because, you know, they were royalty. And then they get Maya instead. And this, yeah. they're all they're all going, Wait, you're not being a condescending asshole? Yeah. yeah, it's like everybody thinks that he's either going to be another Varenetch Bell or like somebody like, you know, a lunatic who's been driven insane by isolation for 18 years. Right. Yeah. And it's like we this is he is neither of those. What what do we make of this person who like, especially since, you know, if we're talking about the like acts of rebellion that he does, like one of the main ones is to say, please. Thank you, and I'm sorry. Yeah, that's another crazy one. He apologizes to his staff, and it, like, blows Sevet's mind. It's one thing for him to be like, oh, that's not normal. Sevet is just like, what in God's green earth is going on right now? He, he cannot process the idea that the emperor just apologized to him. It's like everybody's used to dealing with Karens all day as their as a um, <laughs> uh, as a as a hospitality worker or whatever, and then one day Ted Lasso shows up, and you're like, oh, "This isn't this isn't how this is supposed to go." I don't have a script for this anymore. Yeah, the, the, I, I'm just trying to serve this man coffee, and like he's giving me a hug. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So if Maya is Ted, who is Beard? Uh, seven. Yeah, seven. Because no, because seven is like. Uh, He's the competent I, person who gets stuff done behind when when Ted's not around. <laughs> so would that make uh, so Bechelar would then be what Roy uh, for sure Roy yeah yeah not Absolutely. in touch with his emotions you know gruff you know yeah. Oh, yeah yeah there we go and I guess like okay I, I can't so. I can't actually say this with words yeah. but you know when you called me your dearest friend and brought me down to the thing with your coronation it really meant something to me but like god damn it I can't say this <laughs> <laughs> oh and that totally works because then uh, I'm forgetting his name but the uh, um the the business guy in Ted Lasso. Oh, um, Leslie? No, um, Higgins. Yeah, Leslie. Higgins. 
yeah, Higgins is yeah, absolutely Higgins. um uh, uh partner. Oh, Kala. Yeah. Kala. Yeah, yeah, just a just a dork. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a just mess. Just a, a a gentle a, a gentle-hearted dork <laughs> yeah. that shows up in ill fit in ill-fitting outfits and tries his best and is always surprised when people are like, you know, when he's nice to people and people aren't expecting it. Who Okay, who's Jamie then? Um, oh, uh, uh, okay. uh, what's the 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 chancellor's son? Who's just nervous? A, oh, who's just an nervous. idiot? Nervous? Hmm. I think I. But could be. I would actually say it's Sethero. Maybe because she starts out very like distant and cold to him. Okay. Un- until she realizes who she who she until she understands his quality. And he understands her a little better. They come to an understanding, and then she threatens to murder people for him. See, that feels very see, see, Rebecca I, to me. Yeah, Rebecca to me, because it's like or or Isaac. Okay, yeah, yeah, but like that that like I don't know what to make of you. I'm I'm going to start off hostile. I'm going to screw you over. Oh wait, no, it turns out you're a giant teddy bear. Uh, let's. I will now. I will murder for for you. Yeah. Mm, yeah, Rebecca's a good that, Rebecca's a good example in that one because. She starts off thinking yeah. that Ted is going to be the way of just absolutely tossing away the club and ruining it. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. Ted turns out to actually be a decent coach somehow. Yeah. As a sort of throwaway, I Sethro is one of my like dark horse favorite characters in this book. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because she's she starts out very much like a sort of a blank cutout character. Yeah. But then the more you get to know of her, she's. Friends with Arbalon. So she's a feminist. We know that she's basically, she's a feminist. And then we learn a little bit more and we start getting hints of what she is. And the hints that we get are that she has somehow convinced someone to teach her to be a duelist. <laughs> which is like two, two degrees removed from something she should be based on her gender and status, which I yeah. think is fucking dope yeah. and is such a perfect match for, for Maya. There's a format of of novel that I hate the most, which is this like the the sidequel, right? Where it's like, let's just see the exact same story, but from someone else's point of view. But that being said, I would absolutely read this uh, her uh, Sethro's story. Like, I want to see her point of view on this on this shit because, uh, mm. like, that's got to be she's, she's so she's a much more interesting character uh, in a lot of ways to me, and I want to see what like we get so little of her. I just want more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I will try and sell you on one side quote to this. Uh, and I am going to talk about fan fiction around <laughs> the Goblin Emperor later. Okay. But my personal favorite fan fiction for this, for the Goblin Emperor, uh, is a series called Keystone. Okay. Uh, that retells the events of the novels up like all the way through the novels and then uh, further past them from the point of view of the Alkethmerit staff. Okay. Yeah. yeah so yeah. like, Bechelar and Kala uh-huh. and Sevet and the cooks and like all the the other people. Yeah, yeah. It's really, really good. Yeah, that sounds it's like really, really fun. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very it's it's really sweet. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah, that that's that's yeah, I, I, yeah, for- that's it's a very cool idea of showing these events from another point of view, which is I agree, not us not a typically a kind of like sequel I enjoy. But that one works for me. In, in the context of fan fiction, I think it really works. It, the the it's just when authors get a hold of it, it's usually a problem. 
Yeah. Yeah. They usually ruin the original story. I, I did have one more thing that I wanted to say about Maya as a protagonist, um, which is something that I feel like we should all keep in mind more as we're reading this book, which is that Maya is, in fact, a horny 18-year-old. Yeah, he is. <laughs> yeah, that's... That's true. Oh, Being there like, are one or two like, scenes that are, like, manifestly awkward to, to listen to, particularly yeah. on the audiobook, because it is very much like the horny 18-year-old brain of Maya completely blasted yeah. by the presence of a woman. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, it's like, yeah, it's like the, the, the scenes where it's like, you know that he's just like sitting on his throne with like a pillow on his lap. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, you have to imagine, uh, he's an 18-year-old boy who's like, barely met any women <laughs> and he's like yes, yes. <laughs> it's it's perfectly in character it is just slightly awkward yeah i okay i ship the crap out of maya and seven mm. but <laughs> i am under no illusions maya's what is absolutely by because i mean oh yeah yeah, yeah. he's 100 percent. he's yeah definitely agree. definitely uh attracted to his empress and these other women that he's around. Um, but I think there is reasonable evidence in the novel that he also has a, uh, a, a deep emotional connection to Sevet that might be more than friendly. Yeah. See, I was getting big, uh, uh, OT three vibes from him, Kala and Beshalar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 I could, I, I, could I absolutely could see that. Ser- your serenity. We cannot be your friend. But we could be something else. A new kind of friend. A different kind of friend. A friend with benefits. Uh, I will note that I have yet to read a piece of fan fiction in which Kala is straight. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't track. Yeah. No, that doesn't track. I've read yeah. a lot of Goblin Emperor fan fiction, and Kala isn't straight in any of it. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I, and I think the the other thing that I'd put in as like supporting the like Maya possibly by is the the descriptions of characters and like the the physical descriptions are very similar in detail mm-hmm. between yeah. male and female characters. Um, and you know, especially as you know, the book is technically third person, but it's essentially internal to Maya. Um, yeah. So you can think of the descriptions as being essentially what Maya is observing about each of these people. And they're about comparable in terms of like, you know, describing eyes and like well, shape if you of go the back mouth and, and stuff like that. You go back and read the way he t- talks about Sevet on multiple occasions. And it is very, he very uh, glowing language. He talks about like his elegant features and so on and so forth. Uh, much more, more, a lot more adjectives than is strictly necessary for, for any given situation. <laughs> uh, this is a complete aside, but it reminds me so much of, um, have any of you guys read the Dresden Files books? A mm. uh, long time ago, but yes. So th- Jim Butcher was trying to write a straight protagonist. He was so, he was really fucking trying and it's, it's, yeah, he was it's stupidly, desperately heterosexual, but he spends a lot of fucking time talking about how handsome every man he comes across is. And that's true. <laughs> I mean, he, he definitely likes all of the women in his life and that's first person. So it's like very direct, but he's like, this is, this is the handsomest man I've ever seen. 
Yeah, and and here's my brother, the vampire, who yeah. is incredibly fuckable, and <laughs> yeah. here's why. <laughs> okay, sorry. I mean, uh, I sort of didn't focus on any of the character sexualities because I wasn't sort of, like, thinking about it so much. And also, you know, just being the, like, coolest straight guy, so there's that. Um, but... I don't know. I, I look at that, and some of it is like we have to also take into account how weird Maya is. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, very fair. The he's so isolated. <laughs> oh my he god, new faces. <laughs> like, like he's he's technically you know seeing women, but he's never say you know seeing women in in court attire for since mm-hmm. you know since puberty. He makes a passing reference to. Uh, Having seen drawings of women in in newspapers, <laughs> mm. and that yeah. like yeah. pass, and that's like the closest he's been to like a well dressed woman in his entire life. <laughs> Fucking Maya with the Sears catalog, life. basically. Yeah, and there's and there's like <laughs> and there's like six points in the book where he's like discussing his the hetere, and like every single time he's like but what do I do when I need to fuck? <laughs> yes. He's very concerned about specifically like, who that. is going to be in the room. Uh, when he, yeah, when he, when he gets laid, um, <laughs> which that's fair. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Reasonable yeah. concern. I mean, especially as a solution. an 18 year old virgin to be concerned about the fact that he's going to have to have an audience the first time he gets laid. Like Scott that's said, a terrifying there's an obvious thought. solution to this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> fuck the no hetero, no hetero. Yeah, I'm with you. Although I feel like Bechelar would still insist on like standing oh, guard, but I think that that would be like part of it, like <laughs> that he would get something out of that. <sighs> yeah. Oof. Yeah. That's... Bechelar likes to watch. Is not the not the atmosphere <laughs> yeah, I was thinking the, for this, but okay. Way. Yeah. And does. welcome. And welcome to Bad Pod. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now I know which podcast uh, we're on. What have I gotten into? <laughs> I would like to note that I'm coming into this completely blind. That when Anna records, I usually am not like actively listening. I'll hear bits and pieces, but like normally I'm off doing my own thing, and uh, so I'm just going like, okay, yep, this is the attitude that I've that that is coming in here. The this is the vibe. Just <laughs> maximum yeah, morning. All right. Would you like to repeat the the quip that you made about Bad Pod that one time? Oh, uh, I don't know, it was something about you guys being Olympic, Olympically class horny. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we we have we we wear that label with pride. Thank you very much. Yeah. Seems worthy. Did you have something else you wanted to say about uh, Maya as a protagonist before we move on to a little bit of world building chat? I thought that there's one specifically interesting thing. Um, I was writing down some of my notes and I realized that there's a pattern in the book, which is that Maya does not choose his enemies. Pretty much every single time, his enemies choose him. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's a great observation. Tethamar, in particular, Maya doesn't realize that Tethamar is his enemy, essentially until Tethamar tries to kill him. Yeah, Tethamar is at most uh, an exhausting burden, social burden to him, right up until the moment that he tries to get, tries to knife Maya, which I think is very, says a lot more about Tethamar than it does about Maya. Yeah, 
Especially, especially, it's fascinating too because, like, Tethmar's like, ah, shit, Maya's moving against me. I've gotta, I've gotta move quickly and and kill him before he he you know strikes strikes against me. And Maya's like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, in fairness to Tethmar, the minute Kal- uh the minute Kelahar shows up in the uh, in in the capital, Tethmar's fucked. Yeah. So it's like. They kind of had an idea that Tethamar might be behind all this stuff. And once Kelahar shows up, they were going to know for sure. But yes, very much like Tethamar was imagining a great deal more conspiracy yeah. than well, against him. And as far as we know, my, my, that conspiracy against Tethamar might have been there. It's just that Maya would have no fucking clue what was going on. It was probably like... <laughs> Yeah, Sevet yeah. and like uh, Sethru would be like, "Oh, let's kill that guy." <laughs> yes, I would absolutely believe that the two of them would get together and like murder someone <laughs> for Maya. Yeah, without him knowing. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely, I, absolutely, I, making sure it never fe- never came across his his, uh, his yeah. radar. So can, that, okay, so that's a side quill. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> All of the all of the coup attempts and assassination attempts that didn't happen in the in the book because yeah <laughs> they got cut off at the pass yeah uh, one of the one of the bullet points that I put on the the list which I think can be covered in like one sentence is on a scale of one to ten like how fucked would Maya be in like the not good way yeah if Sevet had not been the messenger got, that took him that message so God and the answer lucky. is like eleven yeah. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like the the in a lot of ways the true protagonist of that book is Xevit. Cuz he basically is the one that is he it is Maya is the will and Sevet is the the, the 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 execution. Yeah. If it weren't for Sevet, none of very little of of what Maya wants to get done would in fact get yeah, done. Yeah. Cuz he would yeah. have no idea how to do any of it. If the smallest thing. And Maya feels guilty about this. He's like, yeah. oh no, I'm making Sevet like do all of my work. Yeah. And meanwhile, Sevet's like, I've just been promoted from <laughs> all the way up, all the way yes. from a messenger to the imperial secretary. And the, my boss is now super cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically going from like, he basically went from like, intern to like white house chief of staff yeah it's it's literally like off on the first mail epi- room in the very first mail episode room to of the west- staff yeah if it was in the very first episode of the west wing jed bartlett had grabbed a white house intern made them chief of staff and it turned out super fucking well <laughs> yeah if if yes i absolutely yes <laughs> yeah yeah if charlie ends up in uh, rather than yeah. his body man yeah, yeah, ends yeah. up his chief of staff. That would have been. And it just turned uh, out that by kind of by dumb luck, he picked the perfect person who knows absolutely everybody and everything about the capital because he's been in all the back rooms. Yeah. So and it's, it's also, and it's also, I would say flexible and curious in similar ways to Maya. Yeah. As well that he does not, he informs Maya about the world of the court. Um, but he's not he's not there. I mean, he's there like being shocked by Maya saying, like, I'm sorry. Um, but he's he's not like telling Maya, oh, yeah, you know, and then, you know, the like he's not telling Maya what to think. 
and what opinions to have. He places all of his considerable skills at Maya's disposal, and re- but respects Maya's decision-making and his morals and wants to help him be the best emperor he can be. And yeah. most people would not do that. They would not place themselves in his at his use without judging his, his without judging him for being different. And it's, Sevet never does that. I don't know. I would I would actually qualify Sevet as one of the uh the more sort of like conservative characters and that he he does tell Maya that no you shouldn't be doing that because that's sort of not what the emperor does. He's he does sort of represent a little bit of the voice of well that's not that's not what an emperor you know would usually do uh you know people are going to expect you to do this it's supportive in a way but it's also still p- has a bit of a role of uh saying well maybe you should you know do it the way people expect you to do it and that's a little yeah, bit more that, of a mixed yeah. message i think for i always interpret that as sevet is always telling him what is the most efficient way? What is going? What is going to get the job done that you want to get done? Like how? How is? How do the? How does the imperial machinery work? And, but and yes, he does often voice the traditional way that things are done. Like when he's talking to Arbalon, uh, and she says, "Like, you know, you can't afford to not ma- marry me to someone." and Savitt's like, yep, that's the way this shit goes. They, but he never, but crucially, he never, he never overrides. Uh, by Arbalon, you mean Videro? Uh, sorry, Videro, you're correct. Videro. Um, but he never pushes, yeah, he never pushes Maya and he never like, like scolds or rejects Maya. He just is saying, I am the, I'm the information. I'm, if you Googled, what do you do with a spare sister? As an emperor, this is what it would say, as opposed to like Chavar, who would yell at you and call you a dummy for it. Yeah, and and Sevet isn't be there there being like, yeah, Videro is like worthless and like that. You know, you should just like marry her off and get some cash out of it, um, and a political alliance. Like that, he's he's not opining on Videro's value as a human being the way that I think a lot of people at court would yeah but i do i do recognize the point you're making there that he does often voice the more conservative standpoints mm-hmm. because he is the the voice of practical practical duty uh, and so he has to sort of say well this is what we ha- this is what we need to be doing to get stuff done and often that sucks like you know there's some like parts where they're like well when you're when your nieces come of age, we're going to have to sell them off too. And it's like, Oh, could we be less gross about this? Um, and we'll get there. Yeah. On that gross patriarchal, uh, transition. Um, do we, are we ready to move into world building? Sure. Sure. All right. Slug. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Othreth, which is the name that the author very recently actually, uh, picked for this world. Uh, a couple of interesting notes that I dug up out of Q&As that she has done on her Patreon, uh, which you should back. It has lots of cool pictures of cats. She has a couple of cats that she takes a lot of pictures of. Her writing help is, is how she labels 
her uh, her cat pictures. So, for example, uh, Ifuvarajan and as well as Barajan uh, are both built with the language construction kit, which is the oh yeah well known uh, toolkit for building languages in the Conlang community. Mm-hmm. Um, she has commented on the fact that it is far too regular of a language to actually be a real language, mm-hmm. but she, that's just the, the way that she prefers to do it. I think it works really well, but it is a lot early on in the book. Yeah. Drowned in a lot of vocabulary. The, especially if you're listening to the audiobook. like what's a, what's a name? What is a title? What is a place? Oh man, that could be. That could be hard. That could be really rough trying to trying to parse that stuff out. Yeah, yeah. And the the audiobook also doesn't have the little like like the book starts out with, and this is one of the things I think a lot of people skip past. Unfortunately, the like traveler's guide to the Elflands, basically. Okay. That I don't know whether that's only in new editions or something like that, but it's basically got the like this is how words work and this is how you pronounce them and this is what titles are. It's like it's framed as a like. Yeah. Travel guide so you don't piss people off by like using the wrong pronoun. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Yeah, that would be very helpful. Also, <laughs> yeah, I seem to also recall that there's something about um there are no silent letters. So actually like um going to call call you guys out on this a little. Um it's not sevet. It should be sevet. 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 Yeah. Which is really hard to say. Yeah. Um yeah, it is. That's a, it's that's a phonetic construction that English doesn't um yeah. Wow, usually, especially not at the beginning of word. Yeah. yeah. Uh, other, the only other one from her Patreon that I'm, I'm going to call out here is one that I thought was really interesting is that the Athuvaraz is an explicitly non-colonial state. It has never conquered anyone. <laughs> Sorry, what? <laughs> Sorry, what? In the Elflands, it's just elves. They have... There, they have uh, Edra Venever the Conqueror, who united all the elf people into one empire, but they don't have colonies overseas, and none of their territory was composed of another people or a significantly different culture that they conquered. Their first encounter with that is the barbarians in the West uh, that they're currently warring against. I believe it's the North. Or, Wait, was yeah, the, the northwest, I think. Yeah, north, northwest. Um, okay. One of the things- first encounter with another culture, where there, where she's like, depending on how that goes, that could get ugly in a real colonial way. But as it stands, the Athuvaraz right now has never done that. Well, it does have a very unique relationship with Barajan. What about what about the part where they? Say that the um, now I'm forgetting the word that the the capital the palace is essentially uh, built on the temple the of, Yule Mary of the uh, of the the barbarians or whatever yeah, they're called yeah the, yeah that's the yeah. that's the thing with the like the war in the north or the war in wherever the barbarians are. That's yeah. not that's not the that's not the palace. That's that's the essentially fortress. the fortress. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That that, that, that did like I, said, I remembered that yeah. when you said there's been no colonialism. I was just going, wait, what? And it's like that's getting that's like that's like I feel like this is one of the this is one of those things where the Elflands is kind of at a crossroads where sure. like 
uh, Baron Echabel was taking them one way into the more colonial xenophobic yeah. colonial kind of um, atmosphere and yeah. you know i could see i could see you know maya's already making inroads into like i would like to make peace with these people because like we put a fortress on their like graveyard their, what the fuck? their holiest of holies yeah yeah uh but i thought that was really interesting um yeah, it's, it's, and it's something that i hadn't thought about the first time i read the book but if you had asked me without giving me any context i would have said I assume they have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, their relationship with the, the, I mean, the, with the goblins is so, it kind of has like the, the, I don't know, the color scheme of a colonial relationship in a lot of ways, at least with the way they're treated within the empire. Yeah. yeah, And that's something that I, I definitely want to talk about. Cause that's, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, within the Athuvaraz, there are the goblins, there's the elves and the goblins who are, to all intents and purposes, two races that are the, of the same people. Yeah. There's notable physiognomy that is unique to each people. They can interbreed freely and they share a lot of the same distinct things. Like, for example, one of my favorite pieces of world building in this, in this story is the ears. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going like, to say. I absolutely adore this bit of, of description. Like, their mood is readable based on like the position of their ears. Yeah. I love it so much. Yeah. You using that as a descriptor for, you know, you don't have to tell us what the position is, but saying that, you know, uh, how it reflects their mood and how their, their emotions and stuff. It, it was like, Oh, that's great. This is a really good p- bit of, of making it feel like these are non-humans. Uh, so I think it's interesting that the goblins and the, and the elves are, they share that. Like when she's talking about, when the author is talking about, how Maya's ears move or how the goblin, the goblin ambassador ears move. He doesn't ever comment on the fact that goblin ears move differently mm-hmm. than elf ears. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we no- have at least two other kind of subspecies of humanoid in this world that we, the, the barbarians are a whole other phenotype yeah. at least that they have sharp yep. teeth and some other characteristics that I don't quite remember there is indicated that they can interbreed as well yep and then we have whatever the heck the the guy who makes the signet Dakinsol Habrapa yes oh and who by is, the way the the narration on him like the, it's the, incredible <laughs> yeah the enunciation and the, the 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 rapid diction is so good yeah, because the the book is like you know, and um, Dakinzel Habrabar like spoke three words for any one word that any person would, and yeah. any other person would say, and the narrator pulls that off. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, I think it's really interesting the way that that relation is done, and I think it's one of the really, I think, defining things that makes the books so interesting from a world building perspective is it doesn't map cleanly to any existing dynamic in the sense that it's like this is not white and black or this is not mm. yeah i don't know about that yeah let me let me make yeah. my let me let me make my argument it's doing something a little bit different because the emp wall from in the in the noble circles there is certainly a bias towards the pure you know 
the pure blood of the elves amongst the imperial circles. But you also see that goblin and goblin-blooded people are everywhere. But they're only everywhere in the lower so- social classes. Not, it's only it's n- not necessarily. Yeah, I mean, um, but for the most part, yeah. The only place you don't see goblin-blooded people is in the is in the very most noble houses, in like the dukes and the lords. Um, Captain Captain Orema, the captain of the of the the palace guards, mm-hmm. is very goblin-blooded. Is is that a role that is that a role that Orema got through uh, through his skill, his proficiency, his competence, or is that a role that he got um, through networking? Who he knows, what his social standing is. Yeah, we don't know. But I think what I, where I'm trying to go with this is the racism that you see in the series about being goblin blooded is off most often. Maya directing it at himself. He makes a lot of really ugly remarks about his own ugly skin and his own lumpy knuckles. But you don't see, and he is in a circle where you would see it, you don't see a lot of active racism against other goblin-blooded people. What you see is simply that there aren't a lot. And in point of fact, the only person that we see that is actively hostile to goblins is Chavar, and his bias is blamed on economics, and also because he's a racist, but yeah. largely on economics. We've also and got Varenegabel with, uh, well, uh, yes, damn, well, looks just like his mother. Yeah, and Varenegabel. Uh, but I think it's interesting. It's interesting because I think. My point is that there's a much more complicated relationship there because Barajan is not it is a an equal power with whom there is an there is constant negotiation. It feels sort of England and France. Yeah, it's an England and France situation and there's constant movement of people across that border. And it talks about how in those regions in the south uh of of the uh, Athufaraz, there is constant interbreeding between those people and you have populations moving back and forth there. And I think that's really interesting that you have that mentioned and it's not commented on in a way that makes it sound like that's a, that's a problem. I suspect hmm. that it's largely a like unconscious bias type thing that people, I think that if you ask like the average person on the street, like, are you racist toward goblins? Like, do you think that goblins are bad? They would probably be like, no, they're perfectly nice people, you know, as servants. Like, that. that yeah, I think that there's a lot, of, I, a, a lot of unconscious bias where, like, by and large, you know, by and large, goblins mm-hmm. do have lower social standing. That's not necessarily because of, like, you know, explicit racism, but it's still, like, you know, people, I think, think of goblins more as servants or laborers um uh, yeah, as, i'm not arguing they yeah. don't have a lower social status yeah. i think my point is and you've you've read the subsequent books so you you'll know what i'm referencing here through all the books there is i'm struggling to think of a case of like overt racism yeah 
the same way that there is overt misogyny or -hmm. the implication of homophobia that we have that that we do see yeah which i and i think is super it's noteworthy and it's worth calling out here and this is the point i'm trying to make because you have a story that is largely about an emperor that is mixed blood so for the story to not have it doesn't have a racial slur being used against him it doesn't have a whole storyline about that it's it may be that there's complexities there cultural complexities there class complexities there but the author makes an makes a point not to make that a piece of the uh a piece of the ugliness i think is the point of the world yeah we do have one other character who we do know is explicitly racist toward goblins and that is in fact setheris Moon-witted hobgoblin. Is yeah. Is Sethor okay? I'm not. I'm not defending Sethoris, but I think that if Sethoris had been ex- had been relegated with an elven boy in the same situation, he would have found awful things to say to that elven boy too. I think Sethoris just fucking sucks. <laughs> that being said, he does use uh, Maya's. Uh, heritage against him as a as a tool against him, and I think that is not yes, absolutely that is that that's not the same thing as if it had if he'd been attacking an, a a, a like blooded elf as himself. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. and and th- so that does change things. Uh, I thought you were going to I thought you were going to mention um, the friend of Idris Idris' sister's friend who oh, yeah. uh, believes that uh, goblins are going to eat everyone. Yeah, that's the other one that came to mind as yeah. I was talking. Yeah, and it's it's little things like that that indicate to me that maybe people aren't saying things around Maya. Yeah. But I mm-hmm. think that there's I think that there's probably some like, you know, pretty nasty cultural narratives about goblins that are circulating through the cultural ether. Yeah. Yeah. Things that you see about immigrants in particular, because most goblins most of the goblins in the Athuveras would be um, immigrants of one form. They'd be traders coming in. They'd be, yep. uh, you know, immigrants. They'd be, you know, f- maybe some are fleeing Barajan um, for one reason or another. And that's that's yep. going to, you know, sort of change the way that people interact with them. Yeah, no, I'm 100% yeah. not arguing that the story does not have that sort of complicated depiction I'm simply, I guess my point was just remark, sort of remarking on the lack of a, uh, an overt racial stereotyping. Sure. Yeah. That you would see in a story. Yeah. Like I said, there's no like, it's treated differently here than it would be in the hands of a different author. Other authors, yeah. <laughs> less skilled authors, would have treated this much more heavy handedly for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You're right on that. Yeah. In a way that's more familiar with like, traditional american depictions of racism in america or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, in mm-hmm. a lot of ways the racism that's depicted here is is something that the a lot more of our of the readers would be able to almost identify with. Like it's not it's so mm-hmm. you know a cartoonish version of racism that that is really overt. It's really easy for a for a white reader to go, "Oh, well that's not me. I wouldn't do that." But some of the stuff mm-hmm. that that gets kind of unsaid in this version of the story would is hard is is a lot more like what you know, people do unconsciously every day and it's a lot mm. harder to sort of refute. Mm. Yeah. And it may also, I don't actually know her 
cultural background. She may be from, she may not be American. So it may be that there are cultural references there that I am not picking up on. Hmm. Yeah. One, one thing that I would be almost tempted would be to draw in something like, you know, speaking as an Anglophone Quebecer, the like, uh, divide between Anglophone and Francophone Canada, um, mm-hmm. could be like just an interesting comparison. Um, yeah. I don't think it quite fits. I don't yeah. think it quite fits. Um, on, on the treatment re- racism against goblins, some of, some of what we also have to take into account is that, uh, since Maya is h- half goblin, who around him is going to say bad things about goblins? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other than <laughs> apparently, uh, Inno's playmate, uh, yeah. and, which the, is then the, conveyed the kid to him. No better. Yeah. 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 All right. What else, uh, about the world building? Well, for one thing, the language, the formal versus informal, um, split yeah. is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's used really, really interestingly in the, th- in the book. Uh, it's not just that the language has formal and informal, mm-hmm. but that the author uses it to devastating emotional effect at times to show where the character's, you know, emotional stake in the conversation is. Yeah. And I think that's really well deployed. Yeah. Yeah. It's an example of the um, conlanging being there so that you can actually affect the story and use it as a tool for the storytelling, not just a, oh, this is a fun fact about our world, but rather this is a a thing that I'm yeah. going to use to convey emotion about the story. Yeah. Yeah. The conlanging in this book, it sounds like there's a lot, but once you get past the fact that like the characters have names, the actual number of words that are there is not that many. Mm-hmm. There's way more in the novella or in the, in the other novels. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, By far. But in this one, it's like, it's the name of the palaces and the various rooms he goes into, uh, of some of the rooms he goes into. And that's kind and of And like the, the names well, of the rivers. And the, the yeah. titles. Lots of titles. Yeah. And the titles. But like, it goes pretty, like, it's pretty quick to get through that stuff. And it's all regular. And I think that's one of the ways in which her use of the language construction kit, kit is pretty regular. So there's like, you know, the there's the the Kethamary and the Eulamary. And because it's regular, even though it's four different kinds of four different words for temple, for different kinds of temples, you you pick up on pretty quickly that it, it's all different kinds of temples. And so it it, it stops being overwhelming at least for, from my impression it it stopped being overwhelming about halfway through the book because it was just repetitions of the same cup the same five or six base words with a bunch of other stuff squashed mm-hmm. onto the front to tell you what was going on with it um loves the word death reveth man yeah there's like a million different u- uses of the of the root word rev for death yep so that was dope I'm gonna put my Tolkien hat on very, very briefly. <laughs> oh, and say one one hour and twenty three minutes in. Uh. <laughs> I feel like that's pretty good. Uh, I think it's really there's a there's a sort of like a a way that we that people talk about Tolkien's world building where he 
uses the language and the world around it to build this verisimilitude of depth to the world by making you feel with the casual dis- the with sort of the casual discussion of the wider world that there's a bigger world around the story that you're ta- that you're talking ta- that you're in without making it feel frustrating that you don't know what it is mm-hmm. so for example when the elves are out and he mentions that you know this used to be the kingdom of such and such it doesn't bother you that you don't know what that kingdom was, but you feel like the the land is lived in. And that's kind of a, a shitty example, but it's like, it's the sense of giving the world that you're in a sense of age. And she does a very different version of it, but I think she does a really effective version of it in the way that she talks about all the old emperors. I think that's a really nice way of doing it. When she, there's this constant reference to, you know, Edra Venavar, the such and such, and mm-hmm. uh, you know Vera Vesena, the this. Like, I, I that's one of my favorite bits of world building in this novel is the constant reference to all these old emperors does give it this this sense of like histor- historicity. And it's an old culture too. Yeah, and it does give you that sense of an old culture, like the Ithuvras in its in like roughly its current form plus minus technological level has been around for millennia. Yeah. It's a couple of thousand years old. Edra Venavar united the two sides of the, of the Istand Artha. Like I think I saw somewhere like 4,000 years ago or something like that. Which is like, you know, this is one of the things that I always find fascinating in it's both fantasy and sci-fi um throw there's a lot of fantasy and sci-fi stuff that throw around the like yes and this culture has stood for 10,000 years and you're like 10,000 years is a lot of years like think of how much linguistic drift there has been in english in the past 20 yeah right yeah like <laughs> just like yeah. you go back you go back just 700 years or something and like uh or i mean, I mean you look at no. i mean 10,000 years Shakespeare, it- is the invention of agriculture. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and humans discover infinite food glitch. Yeah. They do talk about that, that like the, over the course of the, the empire, they've unified their culture. They've, you know, the, the various eras of the, the building of the palaces in, the uh, you know the Alkath Moret and then the imperial palaces and the precincts and like there's lots of little references to the age of the of elven culture which mm-hmm. I like. Um, I do think they slightly over. I don't think it. I think four thousand years is probably overdoing it. Yeah, but maybe two thousand. I would buy. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's it's uh, it always isn't. It feels like an interesting world building choice to me, and I think it's something where. I feel like there's a lot of authors or showrunners or whatever who put those sorts of scopes of time in and don't really think about it. They're just like, oh, thousands of years, whatever. This was one of the ones where it does feel more purposeful that like it was a choice to make the Ithuvros something that has lasted for thousands of thousands of years. And this is being like 
yeah. has resisted change yeah. very well to this point. Yeah, and that and that affects the world building like concretely. It's it's actually integrated in rather than just being a throwaway number. So that that leads into something I really wanted to say was that I was uh, noting writing down my as I, I was writing down my notes and I kept seeing that every time the story can choose when it's happening it's happening at some at a point that's just like ripe for change uh you know we're we're sitting with uh you know the sort of steampunk vibe because the ethuveraz is right on the edge of an industrial revolution um mm-hmm. we see that the tethamata have people who are um like doing manual textile work but then we also have clockwork and airships and gas lamps. Which is part of why they're so threatened by the bridging of the Istand Artha, because the the being able to easily transport goods back and forth and have their, their workforces move back and forth is going to disrupt that peasant labor workforce they've got set up there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And we see it in... Um, Amalo, right? Where yeah, they yeah. build the airships, where uh, there's there's pretty much like some sort of uh, you know workers' rights movement sort of brewing, and we just see <laughs> we just see the the outline of it almost. Oh, and we have multiple of those because we have in we have in um, in Capo, the the city that the palace is in. Um, we've got the the workers' league of Capo. People are unionizing, and then we have, mm-hmm. like, like you said, in in Amalo, there's the weird, like, manifesto people, right? Where we can't tell whether it's more libertarian or more socialist. <laughs> it's like it's it seems like it it depends on the person whether they're whether the that some of the followers are taking we are all born equal, and then following that with. And therefore, nobody should be king. And some of it are some people are following it with, and thus I could be king. <laughs> <laughs> Meritocracy versus egalitarianism. Yeah, we'll, we'll, you'll you'll see a lot more of Amalo soon because that is the setting of everything else she's written. Uh, yeah, in this world. So, okay. so if you're if you're Wild. liking the the industrial revolution stuff, then like buckle up, buddy. Yeah. The the subsequent trilogy starring Thara Kelahar is referred to as the Cemeteries of Amalo series because it is about Thara Kelahar in Amalo and he's a priest of Eulis, so he hangs out in a lot of cemeteries for funsies. As one does. And work. Yeah. His best buddy is the guy that runs one of the big municipal cemeteries. <laughs> His bro. I can't wait till we read those books. I... <laughs> <laughs> I lo- don't get me wrong i love goblin emperor i love the witness for the dead in such a different way but so much too yeah um i cannot wait to read witness for the dead and we are all going to have to talk about tea again and maya's choice <laughs> of chamomile which is very culturally important in a way that is not discussed at all in this book it nothing touches yeah. on it it is incre- it is incredibly culturally culturally important, but this book does not engage with it at all. It's fascinating. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it should be noted that um, 
the author regrets calling it chamomile <laughs> because there's like five named varieties of tea in in the next book <laughs> and there's tea culture and it's like a whole thing and she just kind of called it chamomile in this book because she needed to name some tea Fascinating. She and she just didn't even think about it mm-hmm. And then in the next book, and and here I am, here I am thinking, okay, we, why don't we just talk about this now? Here I am thinking that this was a major world building thing because Maya's there drinking peasant tea, right? Chamomile, like it's a plant that you can grow in your backyard and then make it into tea, and like it's it's a peasant food. Um, but there's this huge tea culture, TM, in this in the, these lands where people are like going to tea house and having like, you know, all these varieties and like you have this, this pairing with this food and like this pairing with this mood, um, all of that shit. And Maya is just not engaging with any of it. He's just like, I like my chamomile. Thank you. Yeah. And it turns out she just, it didn't, it didn't occur to her that she was going to be <laughs> writing about more tea. Because when she sat down to write this book, she thought it was going to be a one-off and then, when she sat down to write the next one, no spoilers, she decided she wanted to write a detective novel. And she was like, well, where should I go? So I want to write a detective novel. And as she puts it, Thar Kelahar just walked into the room and sat down and announced himself as the protagonist of that detective novel. Amazing. Uh, Makes sense. <laughs> another one of my absolute favorites is someone asked her, how do you think of, uh, do, do you think of him as, th- like when you're thinking about Thar Kelahar? Uh, do you call him Thara or Kelar? She said, uh, Kelahar, we're not friends. We're more like coworkers, <laughs> which I thought was very good. Fascinating. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, here I was thinking that the tea thing was like some whole like big world building thing. I will, I will continue to maintain that as my own personal headcanon because I think it makes the books even cooler. No, and it makes the most sense. Uh, but yeah, the other... The other teas have like Ethuvarajan names, and then there's chamomile. I will, I will agree with Southrest, though. Unfortunately, that chamomile tastes awful. One hundred percent awful. Yeah, yeah. Southrest was right. A fun thing that we'll find out is after we've read uh, Witness for the Dead, she's also outlined what all of the Ethuvarajan teas are like. She knows what they all taste like. Amazing. She's listed all of the teas. So, and this is this is one of the things where like it feels like we've just scraped the surface of the world building. Um, oh, hundred percent. And and this is again where like I really like your your description of it as like there being enough world building to make you know that there's more underneath the surface and to make the world feel lived in, but it doesn't feel unsatisfying. There there are so many things that I'm curious about. But there's nothing that I'm unsatisfied. It doesn't feel like she it doesn't feel like she's written cliffhangers around you. It may be unsatisfying as in the like in the sense that like I want to know more, mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel like you're missing necessary information. Exactly. Oh, I was going I was going a little bit the other direction, I think, which is that the the novel takes place essentially from Maya's perspective and Maya doesn't know much of the culture because he's been Not relegated his whole life yeah. up until suddenly he's emperor. And yeah, he, Maya, Maya, I mean, we start the book 
not quite with the level of knowledge about the world that Maya does, but like it's not far off. Yeah, not much more yeah. for sure. My my Maya's like weirdly like a nerd. Like he's been taught some things by Sethris, but not. But he doesn't have like yeah. His education court level is wild. He's like as all homeschool kids are. <laughs> Yeah, never seen a girl, but ask me all about the official legal process for uh, a coronation, and I got you. Yeah, because all he his only education source was basically uh, a drunk lawyer. Right. God, that's terrifying. Jesus oh. Christ, that's well, an amazing vibe, about- though. <laughs> Explains so much. Yeah, but yeah, I think that that's an uh, an important thing to remember is that like we have a comparable amount of knowledge about this world to Maya. Yeah. The only thing he really knows more about is like the gods. Yeah. He knows marginally more about the religious stuff than we do, but not even all that much more. And because like a lot of the court stuff, like we, we would be able to air quotes, know it just based on like this, not that dissimilar from like, other worlds, yeah. etc. So it's like it's not like we're completely without context on that. But yeah, you know, it's like uh, yeah. Maya's there learning about the world right, right with us. Yeah. yeah, I I hear I hear Korajos and my brain mentally inserts the word Parliament. Yeah, because that's what it is. <laughs> it's no, it's Cabinet, not Parliament. Parliament uh, because there's a witness for the Parliament. So there is some form of Parliament out there that we have or, never engaged with. Uh, yeah. Right, because there's it's this is the uh, I think it's more um, a British model than say a Canadian one, uh, where you've got like the sort of House of Lords and the uh, House of Commons. Is that it? Yeah, I forgot. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It, I don't know it, it very well. It struck me well, as but... basically the Korjas being like the cabinet that you have, like the Secretary of State, and you have the the Secretary of uh, Defense, and et cetera, et cetera. That you have like. People with yeah. named roles that are serving as like a representative of that role in the advising yeah. the head of state. Yep, it's an interesting system. Yeah, but it, it but it does run closer to closer to a voting system, though. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like, like Maya is not actually they're not they're not just advising Maya; they're making decisions outside of Maya. Yeah, yeah. there's. I forget which scene it was in, but it was, uh, no, it was where they finally, where they finally approve the bridge. Uh, Maya casts a tie-breaking vote. Mm. Yeah. 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 He can't just decide this on his own. He has to work the Corajas to get it to come out the way he wants it to. Yeah. And the same way with his wedding. Yeah. Which is a fun bit there. Uh, I think it really is a sign of Maya's character that one of the people that he is like most friendly with is one of the people in the Korajas, other than Baranar, is one of the people he is most ideologically distant from. Um, I can't remember the name of it, the name of the of the person. It's slip. Pashavar. Yeah, I think it's Pashavar. Yeah, the one, the the really cranky one. Uh, that he that he uh, has dinner with, um, yeah, that's him. Yeah, Pashavar. He's like he develops a good relationship with Pashavar, despite the fact that Pashavar's like, 
your ideas are bad and you should feel bad for having them, but we're still okay. You're okay, but you should still feel bad about this bridge nonsense, you loony tune. Yes. Yeah. Lord Pashbar, the witness for the judiciate. Yeah. Yeah. That whole scene, uh, dinner party scene is one of my favorites in the whole book, uh, where he goes and has dinner, uh, with the, uh, the, the, the Lord that's the Lord that's in charge of the house of blood. Mm-hmm. Um, the basically the house of Lords person uh, and Pashavar is there. And Maya like basically like shits himself because Pashavar is there. And then it turns out that Pashavar is like fine. Like he's not at all yeah. scary. Uh, and they, they, they all get drunk and chat and it's all fine. Yeah. I love that scene, especially because they're like, they all mutually agree that the emperor was a butthead. <laughs> they're like, yeah, uh, that sucked. You, you probably, and it, the, the one that broke the ice was like, because they didn't let him have something to remember his mother by. Yeah. And everybody is so horrified <laughs> that Varen Echebel did that. It breaks the ice and everybody's like, Jesus, what a dick. Yeah. And it like opens the floodgates and they all like empathize with him and recognize that this is the this is how out of uh that is it, it's really like how mistreated he's been and it lets them empathize with him a little bit. But I just that yeah. whole scene, I could talk about it for a half an hour. And, I love that scene because there's so much going on in it. Uh and also Baronar when he when he makes the offer to Maya to tutor him. Um, mm-hmm. he makes quite the gamble there because he, yeah. he says to Maya, like, you're, you don't know what the hell is going on. That does not reflect on you. That reflects on your father who fucked up. Yep. Um, and like, it is not your fault that you do not know this shit, but you need to know this shit. So like, let's do lunch. Yeah. Props to Baronar for like. He judged that a, perfectly. Yeah. Knowing like stepping in to do what was necessary. And B, like it works out for him, but he if even if it hadn't, he still he didn't do it expecting yeah. that Chavar was going to yeah. launch a wildly ill-advised coup attempt and end up, you know, opening a vacancy in the chancellery chancellery for him to to take over. Yeah. And and you know, in that way, I feel like Baronar is the you know the other civ- uh, Sevet, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. That he's he's the he's the other one who just completely unprompted is like, hey, I'm gonna help you out here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the last bit of world building before we move into the less fun part of this book uh, is the religion. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't learn a ton about it in this book. We learn way more about the religion of the Elflands in the second series because our main character is a cleric for yeah. all intents and purposes. Uh, but we do learn that there's five gods and, well, we learn that there's a few gods. We don't learn how many there exactly are in this book. Yeah. When you said five, I was like, wait, five? Although no, I think that they do mention five. They do, they do mention five because they, they you don't yeah, get a ton of detail on they them. They mention the uh, layout of the Uamere. Yeah, uh, you 
but you get the sort of the general idea of what the gods are. I like the way that the religion is depicted in this series in the sense that it's, it's hard to talk about without talking about the witness for the dead series. I'll just say that I, yeah. I really like the depiction of Maya's spirituality and that he is clearly a young man that has some spirituality and is struggling with that and trying to find a way to express that in a role where he doesn't feel like he's allowed to. Um, and I think a lot of books depict religion and fantasy novels as either a, the Catholic church turned up to like 14. <laughs> so full of shit and homicidal only more so. Okay. No, no disrespect to Catholics, but also are you sure you needed the turned up to 14 there? Well, I mean, like I said, in a fantasy novel, they're even worse, right. which again, <laughs> not necessarily necessary, depending on which century we're in, but really crank up. Or it's like, gods are real, magic is real, pachoo, pachank, pachoo, light up swords and, and holy icons and bleu, like, how do you like that foley there, Aaron? Um, but this is a nice, this book is interesting because you never get the sense that it's disrespecting the idea of its characters, like spiritualities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It also seems like a world where spirituality is extremely personal. Yeah. That mm -hmm. what God or gods you choose to follow is your own business. How you observe that faith is also your own business. Um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of cultural pressure to like show up at the Eulamere every Sunday. <laughs> Yeah, and we see that a lot more in the next book. Mm -hmm. We'll see exactly how that expresses. But um I I don't know. I just think it's a it's a nice depiction of religion where you have I think I think it's in this book where it Yeah, I think it's in this book where it talks about the fact that like the goblins worship some of the same gods or analogs of the same gods and that seems to be okay. Nobody seems like really like bent out of shape about that. And and this this is also a world where you know, at least as far as we know, and and I think we'll probably talk about this more when we learn more about Thara and his abilities in the next books. Um, that this is also a world where, to some degree, the gods are real and give powers. Yeah, um, this is a this is a fantasy world where there is some supernatural shit happening. Yeah. Um, we've seen, as we see in this book, Kala kills a motherfucker with a magic word. Yeah. So yeah. like there's magic of some kind. Power word. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> Power word. Fuck you. And, uh, it's not really a spoiler to say that like when Thara Kelahar puts his hands on the bodies of the emperor and his sons, he's not just like meditating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He, there's some there he's doing mojo. Yeah. But we don't know. You won't get we'll learn more about an idea that. of what that is until the next book. Mm. Yeah. And as somebody who hasn't, I've read a few pages of the next one and then uh, stopped for other reasons. It's like, uh, you definitely get the sense from just the first book, Kelhar is doing something that's not just 
touching, not just examining, but there's a little bit of both. There's mm-hmm. both the idea of, you mm-hmm. know, CSI Athuvaraz, and there's the idea that he's getting something <laughs> supernatural. Sorry, you broke me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great description. Thank you. That's going to go yeah. down in the history books. <laughs> I just heard the... Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> It's, I mean, you're you're pretty accurate. Uh, in the in the in the Athuvras, witnesses are take the role of both investigators and like law and like police figures, where they investigate these things. And also and psychologists too. When you it's think that the witness Valama, the witness Valama for the emperor after the after the first coup attempt, yeah, he's basically a trauma therapist, right. For the emperor, he's there. He's there, like forcing the emperor, forcing the emperor to tell him his feelings so that the emperor can process his feelings. He's like, my job here is to represent you in these proceedings, and I cannot do that unless you tell me everything you're feeling. I had a slightly yeah. different read on that, whereas. Where I saw something as, um, especially the witnesses Valama are looking for the truth. They are looking mm-hmm. for you know the truth to be said, whatever it might be. Uh, you know they're they're speaking for a specific person. Uh, you know the witness the witness for the emperor um, is going to speak for the emperor and cannot cannot speak the emperor's secrets, but can speak on the emperor's behalf to say the, the true things that the emperor cannot say. Mm-hmm. Or a river can't say. Yeah. Or the dead can't say. It's, and I think that's one of the interesting things about this, about Kelahar is because of who he is and what he is, he does that for the dead in a much more real way than it's shown in this book. Yeah. It's also fascinating to me with all of that that the emperor gets a witness Velama. The et- the emperor is not cannot speak for himself in those legal proceedings. Yeah, he has he's no treated voice. the same way a geographical feature would be. Yeah, which is a fascinating just little snippet of world building. I mean, it makes total sense for me. the The emperor, you know, has other concerns. The emperor essentially has a conflict of interest. Yeah, it makes sense. I just think it's really interesting. Yeah. I agree. It's it's just interesting that they, it's a great piece of world building. Uh, yeah, the emperor isn't uh, there like testifying on his own behalf. You know, there's the there's the witness as if he cannot speak. Um, yeah. the The last world building thing that I want to that I want to very briefly call out is that I need to know more about the couriers. Like, I really oh, hope yeah. that we get like mm-hmm. courier books or something because the the thing where they have like like a like internal education network where it's like also kind of like a school thing, but also like are they also kind of prostitutes? A little? I, well, I think they're the idea is that they're not prostitutes. They're just slutty. <laughs> I mean, that was my read on it. <laughs> Amenable. That they're, they, their option, th- that's part of what makes being a, a courier attractive is that S- Sevet says it outright. It's an alternative to getting work on your knees or on your back. Yeah. 
It, it, but also, that doesn't mean you can't be slutty. <laughs> yeah. And if you're but going no, around to lots he... of different places, meeting lots of different people, well, maybe if you fuck some of them, people aren't going to notice too much because you were just there for one night. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the way that Tethamar treats, you know, in, in Sevet's rec- recollection of his treatment of yeah. that estate, you know, that, that puts a very different bent on it, too. That it seems like there's a darker undercurrent to that. And I, yeah. I just need to know more about the couriers, just specifically, it's fascinating. Okay. Yeah. No, I agree. I have, I have one thing to say about a story about the couriers, and I'm going to just leave it at good news, everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd watch that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay. Well, speaking about traumatic things. Oh, yeah. Uh, let's talk about the fact that this book, for all it is a foundational piece of the sort of newly born cozy fantasy genre. <laughs> It, it's kind of got a lot of tr- trauma and abuse and mental illness in it. Yeah, my, my note here is mm-hmm. slaps Maya. This boy can fil- fit so much <laughs> self-hatred in him. Yeah, yep, 100%. Oh. Uh, the, it, it's, nobody hates Maya more than Maya does, except Sethris. Yeah. And I, I mean, even, even Tethamar. Tethamar doesn't even know Maya enough to hate him. Yeah. He's just... Tethamar hits his own idea of Maya. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the most interesting parts of Maya is the Sethiris voice in his head. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This... this, Because it's not just a voice in his head. He acts on it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. He can't... It's the version of himself that his abuse... That the abuse that's been inflicted on him would make him be were it not for his better nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the it's all the collective product of his abuse that he is actively fighting against all the time. Yeah. And I think it's it's one of the most interesting parts of his character is the way that he is constantly fighting against that. He's constantly making that conscious choice between the the two roads after you've experienced something traumatic and you're dealing with other people. There's the, there's the road of, I went through something traumatic. So I should work to make sure that nobody ever has to experience this again versus I experienced something traumatic and therefore I need to take everybody else down with me. Yeah. Uh, Especially the way that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Maya's, Maya's villain origin story. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, He could absolutely have been a villain. Oh yeah. And he doesn't he ends up actively making the choice to not be the villain um from the very beginning too on that note too sethris is so fucking lucky that maya chose to be good tm um and like to the maximum extent possible does not hold a grudge against sethris because like he could have like yeeted that man like into wherever the hell he wanted. Like he could have thrown him in jail, but he's like, no, it was not technically illegal to abuse me before. So like, it's fine. I just don't ever want to talk to you again. Literally no one would have blamed him. If he, if he just told Bechelar fucking run him through 
Bechelar would have done it with a smile on his face. Yeah. yeah. And no one would have said a word about it. Right. Yeah. And I I keep thinking that like almost like in Maya's place, if I were looking at that, I would even have a streak of being meaner than Maya. And I don't I don't like that in myself, but okay. I guess that's no, what I think, I think. We I think it would be you would have to have an incredible strength of character to come out of Maya's experiences as pure and good as Maya is. Yeah. Yes. I think yeah. that's part of what makes this story cozy and a fantasy yeah. is that the main character is a good person who does good things and builds something good despite the intense trauma and abuse that's been inflicted on him for a decade. Yeah. He walks away from that a good person mm -hmm. who actively chooses to make his world better mm -hmm. at every, almost every choice. Like yeah. the worst things he does is he's kind of shitty to a page boy. And then, and then, and then he, makes he up for it little later. Things. Right. Like, yeah. And then makes up for it later. I, mm -hmm. I, also, I do think it's, it's really good that we see that he knows that option to be bad is there to be, to be evil is there. Yeah. He, he thinks about it. He thinks about the, the things that, are, that were options to him and yeah. chooses to do the right, to do the good thing instead. And yeah. I think that's a really, it's, it has a statement about how, what it means to be a good person, where instead it's not just something that's innate to you, but it's in fact a thing mm -hmm. that you do actively as opposed to yeah. just being a good person. Cause he's a, you know, Maya, Maya is a sweet darling boy that we all love, but he, he could be that person. <laughs> he has it in him. Yeah. yeah. He can think about it. He, and he chooses instead not to be. And that is, that's an important part of him. He recognizes, I think he refers to it early on as like, the you know it's poison yeah mm -hmm. and he can't let himself he can't let you know an emperor cannot cannot let himself be uh what is the word vengeful yeah or something like that mm -hmm. yeah it's but it's hard yeah there there are some seriously rough scenes where he talks about the the abuse that he suffered at at Sethris's hands Oh my God! The scene—the scene where he reveals the scars to Sethris's yeah. wife, and she's just like, "Oh my God! I did not know this about my husband at all, and I do not know want to know what to do. I do not know what to do with this information, other than be very sorry." Yeah. The scene, the part, the 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 image that sticks with me in that scene is where he's trying to button his sleeve, and his hands are trembling so much he can't like do the buttons. And Kala like very quietly comes up and offers to, to to button his sleeve for him. Yeah. And says, like, I could not be so forgiving. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's the part that sticks with me the most intensely. And well, and that and Bechelar like storming outside to 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 stomp and yell because he's so upset about it and has no other outlet for his martial fury. Uh, that is, that scene among that scene is of all the special RTM. Yeah, of <laughs> like that that is like the scene where it's like Maya Beshalar likes you. He's just incapable of expressing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's just a doof. Yeah, uh, but yeah, his, that his tongue, scene his tongue is, is tied to the stick up his ass. <laughs> Gross. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what what I'm constantly seeing is that. From the moment that Maya is born to the moment that um, he gets word that he's emperor, 
Maya has been dehumanized, de-elvenized, de-goblin. No, that would definitely be more goblinized than de-goblinized. Maybe. Okay, for the moment. Yeah, depersonalized. Yes, Uh, he's depersonalized constantly. Um, You know that the only thing that he hears from his father is his father calling him a whelp, a damned whelp. You know, like Mm -hmm. he. And then Satheris treats him as I've been saddled with, you know, this, you know, moon-witted hobgoblin. It's the same problem that Idra describes of Shevian, where Idra is also depersonalized because him becoming emperor would be for the sake of Shevian being the mother of the emperor. Mm. Not Idra's mm-hmm. mother, mm-hmm. and it and it seems yeah. like this is something that's you know just pervasive. Yeah, that the yeah. and yeah. and in particular, like that the uh, one of the problems in the nobility is that they depersonalize all the help. They depersonalize you know the uh, common people. Uh, you know they just they want to you know be yeah. you know rich and happy and screw you got mine. The Empire is very much lucky that Chenelo was as good as she was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is Maya's grief for his mother. His, it is how good Chenelo was to, Ma- to Maya and his unceasing grief over her death, which is so pervasive and so constant. Um, it's one of the saddest parts of this book is the way that Maya grieves for his mother constantly. Like it's practically yeah. it's like on a every constant page. suffering. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh it's so sad, but it is that grief and that memory of his mother's goodness that tempers his the the abuse and the trauma that he suffered and lets him still be the good person that he is. And and I I hope that at some point in the future Maya can can in fact look back on you know his first year as emperor or first five years or first ten years or whatever and look back on it and think to himself like yes I've become you know I am somebody who my mother would be proud of yeah yeah absolutely I th- I hope he I hope that he can look at his his reign as a a, a monument to his mother's to his mother. Yeah. Just in general. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many scenes where he's just stricken with grief for his mother. It's so hard. He hasn't gotten to grieve for much of his life. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. He, he, he's not been allowed to be seen to grieve, but he's been grieving. Yeah. Yeah. Every minute of every day since she died. But Sethris has not permitted him to. I would specifically say that he um, he has been grieving this whole time because he was never allowed to mourn. Yeah, that's a good way of putting yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that that I think expresses better what I was trying to say. Yeah, there's there's another thing that I find kind of fascinating with this is that the the thread with meditation, right? Because um, mm. yeah. you know, there's this ongoing mm. thing where mm-hmm. Maya's like fuck, I wish I could meditate right now. Yeah. Um, and it's something that, I mean, Maya has reasons for denying himself 
this outlet of medication. You know, he's concerned that he'll be judged. He'll be con- he's concerned that he couldn't ever negotiate time alone to do it, um, mm-hmm. etc. Meanwhile, like it would almost certainly help him cope with all of this shit, right? That like he is denying himself probably his most important co- coping mechanism for the entirety of the book, like yeah. from coronation on. And if he had understood, if he had been able to just talk to Kala about it, yeah, it, it he could have, yeah, because Kala immediately on on learning this is like, I would not have judged you, like, yeah, we could, you know, I. You know, we could have done this together, uh, or and the Adramaza is like, we would love this. You know, we, you know, I would love to provide you with a. I think that's kind of a, a tangential thing. I think it's really funny that uh, Maya is like manifestly terrified of the Adram of the Adramaza, <laughs> or is not the Adramaza the um, no that the is it the Adramaza it, the head I, of the and the. Both the Edramaza and I think you're probably thinking about the Archprelate. The Archprelate. But he's like terrified of the Archprelate he's pro- and he's keeps avoiding him. Like he's like running. He like dodges the Archprelate because the Archprelate is like looking at him very penetratingly. And Maya's like, whoop, nope, <laughs> nope. And when they finally are forced, he's like finally forced to talk to the Archprelate. The Archprelate's like, hey, let me be a bro and help you out. Would you like to have a friend to teach you to meditate more? And Maya's like, I don't understand what's happening. Someone's being nice to me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is unfamiliar. Yeah. yeah. The fact that he like comments on the, like, you know, not everyone will be your enemy is such a sad, he's buddy. Yeah. You don't have to count the number of people that will be nice to you. Yeah. But it's like his own, his own like anxiety and self-loathing, like lock him out of his most important coping mechanism. And I'm like, oh, buddy, buddy, no. Yeah. That's one of the things I think that makes the book so comforting is the idea that at the end of it, he's in such a better place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. He's got his, he's got his bros, Kala and Beshlar. He's got his. His new backup bros. Yeah. Um, he's got one of, uh, whom, one of whom is a lady bro, which is super awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, Sorry, you he's said got one? A, a fiance? Well, yeah. what's that the, thing? Well, no, one new, of his uh, no are. Yeah. Or, yeah. Right. Yeah. No hetcherous. Yeah. No hetcherous. Yeah. 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 Pure Yeah. Um, he's got a, a fiance that. He's building a good relationship with a fiance who, who would cut, literally cut a bitch for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, would literally cut a bitch for him. If <laughs> who would probably use that phrasing if she were familiar with it? Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. After the after Tethamar tries to kill him, uh, she barges in just enough to see that he's actually still alive, and her only comment on it was, "Is what, what is it?" She says, "Like I would have gutted him, uh, right." I would have gutted him. And it's like, everyone in the room is like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> shit. Uh, also, yeah, she is a sword nerd. Just 100%. <laughs> also the point where yeah. the the gift that her house gives um, the emperor is like an ancient, you know, well-regarded sword. 
Yeah. And, that's, and you that's know not that the gift that her house is giving, that's the gift that she gives, I think. I mean, it's coming, she gives? It's coming from her house, but yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the gift her. that she yeah, yeah. is giving him. Yeah. I love Beshlar is like, is it Beshlar or is it um, the other one? Kala. I don't remember. Or no, it's, or the other. Yeah. God, how am I forgetting the name? I can't remember which of the no Hetris it is in that scene. And it's going to bother me. Um, so many names. It could be, tele- it might've been Telemesh. I, th- I feel like it's Telemesh in that scene. Yeah. That is just like absolutely bamfoozled <laughs> by the present, by this sword. Now I have to look cause it's, it's such a good scene. Well, it was the point of, they did not give that sword to Vera Nechabel. Yeah. Well, not only that, but it's like, it's a dope-ass sword yeah. to begin with. Yeah. And, it's okay, a- and yeah. okay, after she finishes teaching him how to dance, she's 100% teaching him how to duel, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it's just like, but I, now, honey, you've learned the dancing steps. Now we dance with blades. Yeah. No, I... I That's yeah, her I love Karedin. Yeah. <laughs> There, see, see, now I've officially got the vibe down. Yep, there you yep, go. There you yeah. go. Uh, yeah, no, I, I love Karedin, and I love, I just love how boss she is. She, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna veer into deep bad pod territory and say that she is 100% a top, <laughs> uh, and Maya is 100% not. <laughs> Um, so that works out fine. I think he's the canonical definition of not a top. Yeah, but yeah, I that's that's fine. Uh, I think that that will work out well for them. I wish them. I wish them many many happy times with with Kala and Peshalar. I need a I need a fan art. Do you guys know the um, the image of Anne Hathaway in Twelfth Night? Yeah, yeah. And have have you seen the the one with um the one where it's where it's Ted Lasso and yeah. it's uh I think beard. I'm the one who linked that into the uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Probably yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna pop this. I need I need fan art where this is uh uh Chesaro, uh Maya, and then like probably half of the rest of the cast in in, in the background <laughs> all piled on top. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, a hundred percent. Yeah. Ooh, yes. Is that Lee Pace? I don't know the other two. It's it's Anne Hathaway and two of the other actors from that production. That looks like Lee Pace. That's got me all flustered now. <laughs> God damn. Yes, sir. And he's not even a lizard, Jude. <laughs> Lee Pace doesn't have to be a lizard. He's... Elf emperors and space emperors, or elf kings and space emperors and pie makers. He's <laughs> the full package. But not a lizard. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> uh, what else have we got on our, our list here? Uh, we talked about seven. Uh, let's talk about our favorite parts. Yeah. What is our... F- um, I think I've made it pretty clear that I love the world building in this book. Um, but my other favorite part of this is just how good Maya is. Uh, his compassion for everyone around him. The fact that that's what kind of makes him successful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a handful of scenes that are, are 
my favorite, but one of my very favorite scenes is his birthday. Oh yeah. And everybody has sent him gifts like, and he's just like, I don't understand. What do they want? And seven is like, you fucking dork. They want you to have a nice birthday. You idiot. Yes. Uh, But I love that. Like everybody by that time, like people are realizing he's a good emperor. Yeah. Everybody, but him. Yeah. And I think that's great. And I think it's great that by the end, he's got his aunts there. He's, he's got some family. He's got some community. Yeah. Uh, he's got some success. And the idea that you don't need a sequel to this book. No. About Maya, because Maya's story is just one of going forward peacefully yeah. from this point. I, I almost want something from the point of view of, I know, Maya's granddaughter or something Mm. you know Mm -hmm. the you know the future empress (laughs) because you know that's one of the things that i that i feel that i like so much about this book is that it feels so hopeful that you finish it Mm -hmm. and you see the golden age of the elf lands like you see that maya has taken the like the first steps on this road that you know He's bringing a golden age to the Elflands. Um, you know, yeah. he's working to bring forward labor rights, um, feminism, improving relationships with Barajan. He's trying, he's going to, like, he wants to try to make peace with the barbarians, like, all of these things. Like, he's, you know, he's, the world has been, like, at a crossroads and, on the one hand, you have the revolutionaries and like all of these things that could you know fracture fracture the country and send it into chaos and a dark age. And here he is, like you can see you can see how he's made all of these decisions that will and you know, opened his mind in a way that will put this you know put the Elflands on a good path for centuries. Hopefully, if there isn't another coup attempt. Uh, For what it's worth, the author has stated uh, that while she doesn't see the need to write more books about Maya, it's not impossible slash she thinks it's very, it it could very well be that he would appear in other books. Mm -hmm. So whether that's about, whether that's one of the Thara Kelahar books or whether that's another book. Um, she said that the upcoming third book in the Cemeteries of Amalo series is the end of that series. Interesting. But she has also said that she loves the world and she intends to write more in that world. Yeah. I would totally just give us a uh, uh, a book about like trying to discover stuff about astronomy with uh, Venero. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the the number of characters that we see sort of at the periphery or that we don't see. I mean, basically, all, there's so many characters around Maya that are fascinating and that I want to see more of. And that's a really good sign that, like, an author can create a character. We only see them for, you know, a, a scene or two. We hear a little bit about them and we go, oh, no, I want I want more of that story is really mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. Um, Idra is one of those people for me. Yeah. I love Idra. The idea that he was raised in the middle of the court and yet he he still has that fundamental goodness yeah. he hasn't had his goodness stamped out mm-hmm. and it 
And it seems like his father was also a genuinely good person. That it seems like yeah. his father was much, maybe much more like Maya than he was like Vera Nechabelle. That's mm-hmm. that's also that's also got a bit of an open question because it's the classic unreliable narrative problem. Idra Idra thinks highly, you know, of the person his father was, but we don't actually know much at all. We're mm-hmm. not told that yeah. we just have Idra thinks his father, you know, probably would have been a good person. He'd like to think that mm-hmm. his father would have gotten along well with Maya, but we don't actually know. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know, Idra could be, you know, bending the truth a little. Yeah, or yeah. just mistaken because he's a kid, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely would love to have like a short story that is just like Alketh Moret family time. Sure. Yes. With <laughs> Maya and Idra and Inno and Mirian just like eating cereal and hanging out. Just chilling. Because Maya's Maya's just, a kid too, right? Like yeah. You know, yeah. Well, he's a kid, but I just I yeah. love the idea that this is a someone who never had anything. Yeah. And now he's got these three children that he's responsible for, and he's got a surrogate grandma, mm-hmm. and he's got a sister. Even though like Vadero has not worked up to to like acknowledging him in that way, I feel like she's gonna get there. Yeah. Uh. So I, I like that he's surrounded himself. He has family he, that is, he's going to get there. Yeah. And I like that. Mm-hmm. And that's another, that's another thing that's like hopeful that you can see, you can see that like he has people now. Yeah. Well, yeah. A really consistent theme across the book is that like he can, whenever he, not, not whenever, but almost always when he opens up to people, he find he finds, he's found the right people. He opens up to them and he gets rewarded for that with, you know, good relationships and new allies and new friends and family. And I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why this gets classified as, as cozy fantasy. Cause it's like the idea that like you can do that. You can find those people consistently and, and have things go, you know, build mm. a, a support network of, of people that care about you and that will treat you well is a fantasy for a yeah. lot of people. And it's one that makes people feel really good. Yeah. yeah. I have trouble finding a favorite part. I mean, I think, if I had to go for one thing, it would be Maya's kindness. I think, I think that I would highlight um, which river was it? It was uh, he has this one negotiation that is a kind of a big deal, and it would be yeah. it would be the yeah. one yeah. the one where there's um, land where rights, water says, rights. Um, yeah, the, yeah, the, the one you. where he is just like. You all suck. I'm doing what's right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And uh, the, bri- the bridge over the Upazera. Yes. Yes. And he builds it by going and saying, okay, let's break down this problem and try to do the right thing. And it's, some of it is like, he's, he's cutting a Gordian knot. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's, he's going and, and it's one of the first times where he actually sort of sees the pattern of mm. acting as a ruler and is surprisingly good at it because he's saying, okay, I'm going to try and, you know, find a fair outcome because I've got to, I've got to displease somebody. So I might as well just do the right thing and displease all of you a little. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and the thing is, is that he's, he's come across, he's come across this like principle of, you know, good governance from his principles of like, kindness and listening and mm. yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I I really like that scene. Um, that it's it's, it's so satisfying. It's yeah. one of the scenes too where we get to see him actively being a good emperor. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Not just sort of like existing as an emperor and being a good person. That he's there, like resolving a dispute in a way that doesn't make anybody truly happy, but is equitable and um, equitable and reasonable, and sets things up well for the future. And oh, and there were two more things with that. One was that it connects both the like emotional side of he wants he wants the fundamentally kind outcome, but also mm-hmm. he comes at it intellectually of okay, what is the actual dispute here? And the actual dispute ends up yeah. being okay. Well, they're you know getting messed up by this, and they're getting messed up by this, and they're getting messed up by this. Okay, so we've got to just untangle it. Um, yep. But it's a bit of both, and then just like it, tie- it ties well into the other stuff that he is taking on, you know, a leadership role in that because he could have just said, "Okay, let's pick one and favor them," but he doesn't. He tries mm-hmm. to go for everybody, and it's it's the it's the thing that makes me think, ah, this is this is the you know ruler who was created. This is the this is the guy who was created in a lab to be the perfect ruler because uh, he's not. Uh, greedy or egoist uh he you know insists on not depersonalizing and he's a total outsider who doesn't have any uh like stake beyond maybe please don't attack me personally yeah you go and you suspend your disbelief a little bit for that and then it becomes really powerful because it's yes he's doing the right thing that's the whole point yeah yeah the true fantasy, a reader who will do the right thing. <laughs> mm. yeah. In so much as there are parts of this book I don't like, I would say the only thing is, I think something we all called out is that the vocabulary can be intimidating the first time in. My only other thing I I had was uh, the book is plainly empathetic to both women and queer people, but but the construction of a world that is plainly not begs for stories that redeems their suffering. Uh, and this book doesn't have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, except for the existence of Maya, yeah. who is someone who may offer them more opportunities in the future. Uh, the sequels, no spoilers, but do a slightly better job of that. But uh, it's the, my one thing in this series is I want there to be more hope for women and queer people in in this world yeah it it does still feel like that's a long way away at this point yeah that maya maya's like maybe moving the needle on it but especially for women i feel like he'll be moving that needle faster than he than he will for 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 queer people yeah Mm. Um, i mean some of that just being that it's some of the same problem of some of the same problems of the real world that you know queer people are not well understood mm. yeah yeah as evidenced by maya's own like abahu when he finds out that that thara galahar is gay yeah uh it, it just literally has no idea what to do with that information it's interesting because it's it's like those were you didn't have the author didn't have to have included those elements in a fantasy world it's a fantasy world you get to make up whatever you want so yeah. Very just as easily could have made a fantasy world where women and queer people were 
represented well and equal in all ways, and there was no misogyny or homophobia at all, except that then you don't have the opportunity for Maya to be better than the rest of the world. And yeah, in that sense, it's kind of unfortunate. It, it, it is unfortunate that those that element in the world was exist was put there specifically so that we could see what a good boy Maya is, and he is a good boy, and we agree. But nonetheless, it does leave the rest of those characters in a slightly crappier world just so that we can have the, the one good boy. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I I I draw a very specific line for most fantasy. There's a difference between the world being chauvinist in some way whether mm-hmm. against women whether against queer people whether against you know skin color whatever there's a difference between the world being bigoted and the uh novel the book being bigoted yeah i think I know and here i think that one of the things is is highlighting maya's empathy is the powerful part mm. he says i see this racism and i'm i'm angry at it because I'm a person too, even though, you know, I'm half goblin and dark and like treated uh-huh. as lesser because of that. Um, I see these, you know, women who are not allowed to, you know, choose the path of their lives. And I get that because, you know, partly because he didn't get to choose his path himself. But it's, it's the opportunity to say, it's kind of saying to the reader to be kind you should be reaching out to these marginalized people and helping them. And I think that's actually pretty powerful. I mean, would, yeah. I, would I have liked well, I to see something where, uh, you know, down the road, Maya makes a big change that, you know, really improves things? Yeah. But, but I, do see, I do see that he, he is laying the groundwork. Mm-hmm. And we see uh, towards the very end, uh, there was... Somebody, I don't remember who offhand, starts... One of the nobles. I know exactly yeah, what you think. Yeah, the, the starts one the, of the unofficial school a... for girls with Meizai talents. Yeah, it's one of Videro's yeah. friends. Yes. Uh, there's also uh, a noble who brings his bo- his uh, courier boyfriend to the winter night. Yeah. And everybody's like, it's not... No, the boyfriend's fine. It's just, you know, not really appropriate for the Lord to be bringing him to things other than winter night. Like, they're not offended that he's gay. Mm. They're just like, you know, from a, from a purely, like, social, you know, social rules standpoint, you really should not be socializing outside of your, outside of your class structure except on winter night. Yeah. So, it's fine. Like... They don't, there's no, no comment is raised about the fact that his, it's a, a male courier that he's, it's just like mildly uh, gallivanting with. Yeah. Like, it's like a mild piece of gossip, basically. Yeah. So it's interesting what, what is and isn't raised there. But yeah, that was my only. And it seems like, it seems like there may also be heterogeneity in the culture as well. That Mm, like, you know, versus um, Thara, where he had his. Um, I forgot the name of the city, but you know where he had his um, prelacy. His first prelacy before, yeah. um, like it seems like there people were far more homophobic than they maybe are at court. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I will say, uh, Thara's backstory makes great use of the of his. I don't want to get into spoilers. Uh, 
And we've got two whole other books and yeah, eventually yeah. three. Don't to worry talk about, about it. Thara. So we can, we can leave, yeah. put a pin in that and uh, come back to it. Yeah. Thar, Thar Kalahar's great. And uh, there are scenes in the next book that make me absolutely want to bang my head against a wall. I love them so much. <laughs> so, yeah, I had one more thing I wanted to say about the court versus public opinion, perhaps. Yeah. Which is some of this, I wonder, I wonder how much of that is privilege of like, uh, the, the guy with a, you know, courier boyfriend, uh, maybe is getting away with it because he's a noble. And mm. so people, you know, don't really want to stir the pot by, uh, you know, going after him, but then maybe, you know, would, would say a commoner get away with the same? Well, I, they do what the author does emphasize in the next book we're going to read, uh, Witness for the Dead, the, the cultural differences between the court and Amalo, which is much further away from like the center of imperial society and is more old fashioned in many ways, mm-hmm. um, in some really interesting ways. And I think that's a really nice bit of world building in that, like, in some ways it's more advanced because it's on the imperial fringe. And so it's, it's, there are ways in which it's, it's more freewheeling in what, what is, what can and can't happen. But in other ways, like there are certain linguistic constructions that, you know, in the court were considered old fashioned that aren't used, that are used in Amalo. And, um, so, um, the last note I will make the fan fiction for Goblin Emperor is uniformly very good. Um, it's very spoilery. I would maybe say maybe don't read a lot of it uh, <laughs> until you've read uh, the next two books. Uh, but the two that I've linked at the bottom of our notes doc, Keystone and the Archduke and the Glorious Dragon. Uh, the second of um, is, the second of those uh, is an AU in which Maya is stolen from his bed in the Donami, uh by his gay pirate Aunt Chilean and raised to be her pirate successor is fantastic. Fantastic. It's such a good one. Uh, it's a good premise. Oh, it's so good. Uh, when he meets Sethro, uh, and she's just like, who is this sword wielding half goblin hunka hunka man meat? Uh, very good. Uh, but I think Keystone is my favorite because it really does tell the story from another angle that's very, very rich. Yeah, and on the kind of like fan fiction AU note, um, there isn't fan fiction that exists that I know of on this. I haven't delved into the into the fanfic minds, um, but I'm deep, deeply curious about the alternate universe where the Avar takes an interest in Maya before he's emperor mm. and mm-hmm. names him as the heir, and like names him as his heir, mm-hmm. being like, "Well, you know, yeah. I've got one grandson, so like." Let's see what we can do with this. That would be fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's 630 works on AO3 in so under the probably uh, in there. Goblin Emperor tag. Uh, but that's not counting. Uh, I don't know if that's inclusive of all of the uh, Witness for the Dead stuff. So I think it probably is. Anyway, this series is great. Uh, this book is great. And more people should read it, or or listen to the audiobook too, because the the audio does fantastic. I think help with a lot of the like 
how do I pronounce that issues because it's uh, pronouncing it for mm. you. And the, the narrator is also truly excellent. Um, unique voices for every character, mm-hmm. which yeah, it is incredible really good and consistent. Yeah. And the other thing that I'd like to call out is the, um, just as a small detail from the narration, every time he says that, um, damned whelp looks just like his mother he says it in the exact same intonation i don't think it's a repeated clip but it's the same Mm. intonation and it really like drives home that this is a flashback for maya he's hearing that voice in Mm -hmm. his head over and over and over again um the same with moon-witted hobgoblin i think and um that's something I think that doesn't quite come across in the book as much. In the book, it seems more like he's recollecting it, but in the audiobook, it comes across much more as a flashback. Um, and I think that yeah, that's agreed. very powerful. Yeah. Yes. Got, got to call out Goblin Emperor for being one of the very few properties on AO3 that the most popular relationship is a hetero relationship. <laughs> <laughs> of Sethro uh, and Maya, that isn't that is unusual to the max. <laughs> yep. Hmm. But, I, but okay. But the thing is, I feel like that's, I feel like that might be a hetero relationship, but it's not a straight relationship. Uh, a, a man and a woman married, <laughs> but in a very bisexual way. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Or like you <laughs> yeah. know, but I don't think that I don't think that in their marriage either of them wants to conform to oh. you know standard gender roles at the very no, no, least. For sure. Look, I would guarantee that more than half of those, in more than half of those stories, uh, Sevet plays a non-zero role in their in their activities. Hey, man, <laughs> number five on this list list is Sevet, Sethro, and Maya, <laughs> which is right, pretty good. So, there you go. But yeah. Uh, all right. Well, uh, thank you, listeners, for uh, putting up with this. Uh, I had a great deal of fun yeah. talking about this lovely book. Uh, and I can't wait to come back and talk about uh, the next in the series, Witness for the Dead. So, yeah, I thank you to uh, our guests. Scott, do you, do you want people to find you on the Internet? And if so, where? Um, I, I am I am can be found anywhere that you can look up the words Scott Paladin. Um, I, I pretty much I'm on the, all the socials and stuff. Um, I don't know which one will be in ascendance by the time this this comes out. <laughs> but I'm pretty much everywhere. Um, or you can look for um, probably the best one to look for right now is Breathing Space, which is a sci-fi uh, audio drama that I am a big part of. And we'll include notes mm-hmm. to that in our uh, show notes. And I believe that Michael, you're here. You're here, semi incognito for your main internet presence. So you do uh, not yeah. want people to find you on the internet. Is that right? Correct? Yeah, I would. I would not like people to find me on the internet. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the, smart, uh, that's the smart move. Yeah, yeah. I I can empathize with that. Oh, yeah. um, my chief concern these days is my boss finding out. Uh, <laughs> I have said even some of the things I have said. Uh, on Twitter or on one of my podcasts. Um, not that I'm entirely ashamed of any of it, but I don't think I would ever be able to look at my boss the same if he had heard me say some of the things about Jakar that I've said. <laughs> the trick is you just need to find somebody who's as horny for lizards as you are. <laughs> Lizard men. Lizard men. Oh, excuse me. And also, uh, and also Lawrence of Arabia and Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan right? Kenobi and Lee Pace. I have a time. Uh, and and Clearly. also Captain Pike. Yeah, <laughs> but everybody's horny for Captain Pike. Fair. 
Yeah. See. Uh, See. Yeah. No, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty damn straight. Unfortunately. Your loss. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, yeah, I can, I can definitely, I can definitely see it. You know, like, okay, Captain Pike. It's like if I had to pick a dude, but also just, yeah, I, I got unlucky on that roll of the dice. I guess. The the, the realm to be in is straight but fun. Okay. <laughs> I can work with willing that. to entertain. On that note, uh, thank you for listening, and we will uh, see you next. Talk to you next time. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license.